0: Hello and welcome to New Books in African Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every programme, we talk about a new book that looks at some aspect of Africa and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Chocolate Nations, Living and Dying for Cocoa in West Africa. And the author is Ola Ryan. Chocolate is, of course, an enormously symbolic product, a symbol of luxury in the developed world and of commodity production in the developing world. Campaigning groups are focused on cocoa growing for supposed problems such as child slavery, and schemes such as fair trade have been trumpeted as providing solutions to some of those problems. All in all, it's a fascinating subject, and this book is well worth reading. But first, of course, I hope you enjoy the interview. Sitting opposite me here in Westminster is All Ryan, the author of Chocolate Nations, Living and Dying for Cocoa in West Africa. Hello.
1: Hello. Good afternoon.
0: Good afternoon. Uh, this is a. It's a fascinating book about a um, something that. W- to be honest, we all know we take for granted and what lies behind a, a very well-known product, a commodity, etc. And how it comes about and all of the different issues involved in in, in its production, in, in growing cocoa in the first place, and how it actually uh, affects the, the countries and the communities within which it's grown. So um, before we actually get to discuss some of the things in the book itself, why don't you just start off ch- just telling us a little bit about yourself and, and how you got so interested in this subject?
1: Okay, um, I'm a journalist and I have been a journalist for nearly 20 years and um, in 2005 I accepted a job with Reuters to work in Ghana Um, and one of the reasons that Reuters is so interested in having a reporter in Ghana, which is a small country in West Africa, um, is that it's the world's second biggest producer of cocoa and obviously most people know Reuters because it's a general news agency but um, it makes a lot of its money by selling financial news or commodities news. Um, And this makes Ghana very interesting for Reuters because um, Ghana produced one million tons of cocoa last year. That's out of a world crop of 3.5 million tons. So if you subscribe to the Reuters service or the Bloomberg service or one of those, you're very interested in knowing about supply and production in Ghana because that could influence the price of cocoa on the market in New York and the market in London. So if there's a strike at a port in Ghana, if the weather is really bad in Ghana, all these things could influence the, cop, the crop and could influence deliveries. And ultimately, this can influence the price. So if you subscribe to the Reuters news service, this is the kind of information you want to have.
0: So, so when you were in Ghana, just out of interest, what kind of proportion of your time was spent monitoring things connected to chocolate or right. cocoa, rather? Um,
1: God, that's a good question. Um, I always felt that a disproportionate amount of time was spent trying to get information on cocoa. I mean, if you looked at the stories that ended up on The Wire... <laughs> There wasn't necessarily that many stories on cocoa that ended up in the wire, but I spent an awful lot of time trying to get the information because it was incredibly sensitive. Oh, right. You know, this is, um, you know, this is the country's biggest export earner. You know, there's a saying: cocoa is Ghana, Ghana is cocoa. And um, they take it very, very seriously. The Ghana Cocoa Marketing Board, which runs the sector, don't like speaking to journalists. They don't like speaking to Reuters. I don't think they particularly like speaking to me. Um, they knew that what I reported could move the market price they felt this could never be in their interest so I felt I I spent a lot of time trying to understand the industry and while at first if I'm honest when I got there I sort of thought you know there's far more interesting things than cocoa to write about you know this is just bean counting um I maybe it was because it was so difficult to get the information and maybe it was because I had to work so hard to understand it but I realized that this was a way um that learning about cocoa was offering me an insight into Ghana, that more obvious general news story, such as about politics or, I don't know, politics. Or the, I mean, I know the cocoa is the economy, but about the broader economy, they somehow, even though cocoa was sort of quite niche it seemed to offer me sort of this insight into the way that sort of Ghana worked. And I ended up finding it quite fascinating. But um, yes, I spent a lot of time trying to get this information. I'm not sure how successful I was. <laughs> but, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of time trying to get information in, you know, which in a lot of times was um, actually quite mundane. You know, I would go down to the Coca Marketing Board and I would, you know, ask them if the weather would affect the crop this year. And, you know, you're essentially asking people, you know, What's the weather like? You know, this is sort of normal conversation in the UK. But, you know, they would react as if I'd asked them if the sky was about to fall in. <laughs> and because they could see where, as a journalist, I could be going with this yes. <laughs> and what this could mean for the cocoa price.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, and I guess as a journalist, as you realise that people sort of, you know, are very sensitive about this and they take it very seriously, you're wondering, like, well, what's there? You know, why is this so why is this sort of so important or so why are you so defensive about this so that's kind of how I got into it and I guess as a way because um because the guys at the cocoa marketing board in Accra which is the capital of Ghana were very sensitive and wouldn't give me any information I had to do a, a lot of legwork which is obviously very good journalism I had to I went to the bush to speak to farmers um and you know, buyers and people who worked up country. Because if I couldn't get the information in Accra, I had to sort of go to the source to get it. And I went and I spoke to farmers and spoke to buyers. And, um, you know, that in a way, I think that's really kind of what inspired me to write the book. Because once you get into the bush and once you're speaking to farmers and once you see where they live, you know, the contrast between if you think of where I came from, I was coming from, I was hired by Reuters to write about commodity markets. And, you know, the commodity markets in London are essentially a busy trade. Well, I don't know if the commodity markets in London are a lot of flickering screens with data on it. And that's the, you know, that's the London cocoa market. When you get to Ghana, the cocoa market in Ghana is all these villages, you know, which, you know, many of them are essentially made up of Mud huts with straw roofs, sometimes tin roofs with the farmers better off. the farmers don 't have running water they don 't have electricity. There may or may not be a school in the village, and um, the children often have often have to walk far to often have to walk far to get to school. These farmers don 't eat chocolate they 've never really heard of chocolate. cocoa isn 't something which is used locally it 's an imported crop um, it 's a million miles away, not just literally but in figuratively in every sense you could possibly imagine from in a way, both the London commodity markets and also sort of the industry that you or I grew up with, which is, you know, Cadbury's milk tray, the Cadbury's cream egg, it's Easter, you know, Valentine's Day, all these occasions which, you know, where chocolate is a really big part of it and all the imagery and decadence and what have you that goes with chocolate. And this was the... And this was where it was all coming from. And without mm-hmm. the, if unless if these farmers didn't do what they were doing, none of this would exist.
0: Absolutely, absolutely,
1: none of this would exist. We wouldn't have this big chocolate industry, these commodity markets. You know, would have nothing to trade. It all came down to what these farmers were doing, and as far as I could see, they had absolutely nothing to show for it. Mm. So, um, you know, so it was that. It was I wanted to sort of explore, sort of explore the reasons around that, and. Um, And as you know, as I said, the fact that um, politically and economically it was so important in Ghana, that just sort of kind of fired my interest a bit more.
0: Mm, It gives a certainly in the book it it comes across just the the multi-dimensional nature of something that eventually ends up as a couple of figures on some commodity markets, as you say.
1: I mean that was the because I think before I went to Ghana, I'd often heard the phrase of you know about a particular crop or a particular commodities such as gold or copper or what have you it's the economic lifeblood of a country and then when I got to Ghana I actually really understood what that meant Um, because you know there's 800,000 I think it's 800,000 let's say 800,000 farmers in Ghana Um, let's say they have sort of dependence of four or five each. That's four or five million people in a country of 20 million people. You know, the busiest time of the year is October to December. When they sell their beans, those villages have a lot of money. The whole, you know, prices start going up in the market. Everything is shaken up by sort of, by the arrival of sort of the cocoa money. And, you know, cocoa is sort of the country's biggest export. Ghana... It exports gold, it exports, you know, it has, there's other, it has other commodities that it exports. But cocoa is the one that I've seen as sort of keeping the country together because it influences so many small people. Um, and, yeah, it was a really fascinating insight and a real shock to see how this worked on the ground. Mm.
0: Uh, one, one phrase that you use in the book, which I, I really appreciated, was you said it was a real-life uh, uh, lesson in economics. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Did yes. you know much economics before you went, or was um, this your... Uh
1: no, I'd, um, I knew some, but um, I think, I don't think, I hadn't, I'd written business stories before, I'd been a business journalist, but I don't think you understand it. this was very much the hard end of it. Mm-hmm. This wasn't, I I think prior to going, I could have deciphered a company report and, you know, I could have interviewed a sort of an executive, but this was very much the hard end of it. And, you know, it was... And it was so closely related to something that I felt that I knew quite well. But when I got to you know, the chocolate industry, just I felt I knew it quite well as a consumer. But it, and actually, when I got there, I realized I didn't know anything about it at all. I mean, one of the things that I found when I was writing the book, um, people would often, you know, I say I was writing about cocoa and people would assume that I was spending a lot of time in South America. <laughs> and I was like, no, 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 you know, most of the world's cocoa comes from West Africa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was one of the things that, you know, was sort of really really in a way quite shocking people don't even know the countries that this comes from you know there's a a tiny number of chocolate bars you know where the beans are sort of sourced from venezuela and they might be premium cho- chocolate bars or they might be you know Quite well known, but the vast majority of chocolate bars that you eat, they beans, you know, they will be made with beans from sort of from West Africa. And most people don't know that.
0: And that's Cote d'Ivoire as well as yes, Ghana. Yes. They, they, well, t- are they two, the two big producers? Yeah.
1: Uh, Cote d'Ivoire is the world's biggest producer. Ghana is the world's second biggest producer. Um, and West Africa as a whole, and this would include Cameroon and Nigeria, produce over 2 million tonnes a year. And that's out of a world crop of 3.5 million.
0: One thing I'm very interested in, and you've already mentioned this a bit, but uh, the figure that you've got in the book is that there's only 3% of global sales of chocolate are in Middle East and North Africa. You're saying that a lot West of these people uh, and, and, and you're saying that a lot of the people who grow cocoa not only have never tried chocolate, but they have very little conception of what chocolate is.
1: Yeah, no, that's that would be that's very true.
0: Um, ha, did you ever go to one of these places and actually try and explain, or, or maybe even offer them chocolate or, or something like that, and say this is where it all ends up?
1: I think I would have found that quite patronising
0: to do yeah. that. Um, I, think, I understand.
1: Um, I think I would. Um, I think you know farmers aren't stupid. They understand that there's a demand for this in the West, and they understand that it's made into a good. And I think it's quite hard to explain the kind of the industry that's grown up in the Europe and the US around chocolate, the kind of, you know, the tempting treat, you know, something, you know, the it's all the imagery that's sort of consistent with chocolate and sort of the heavy advertising and, you know, the Easter egg industry, sort of the Valentine's present. You know, I think, I'm sure, you know, like I said, farmers aren't stupid, they understand that this is, you know, this is a, a crop that sort of people use to make a good that people want to buy. But, I think it's quite hard to sort of convey what chocolate means in our mm. culture. And symbolise
0: it. symbolises luxury. What is, and, yeah,
1: what is it, this sort of idea of sort of luxury and decadence and um, all those things sort of that, that sort of chocolate, you know, has come to sort of represent in the West. Um, I mean, I think for them, cocoa is simply cash. Mm-hmm. You know, it's um, they can't eat it, they sell it, you know. So, but I mean, it's quite, when you go into Cocoa Villages in the busiest time of year, um, October to December, you know, the smell of sort of chocolate is really rich. And Mm. it's so strange because this, you know, you smell, you have that rich smell of chocolate, like when you're melting it on the cooker or, you know, sometimes you, you know, that scent Mm. and um, it brings to mind certain things for me, but for farmers and people in those villages this just means it's the busy time of year and you know this is when people will come to buy the beans it doesn't you know the the imagery you know the the associations are completely different
0: let's just stick with the uh, with the with the farmers at the minute can you just give us an idea of what it is like as a crop to grow and to earn your living from because obviously you know everyone talks about something like sugar cane being a particularly difficult thing to earn a living right. through but uh, what's it like for the farmers being dependent upon the cocoa crop and what's right. their life like
1: um okay um well the crop is a native to west africa and it's known as being a very sensitive crop it's very Mm -hmm. sensitive to disease um it's also there's a tiny band around the world that you can grow cocoa in i think it's about 10 or 15 degrees on each side of the equator because that has the right you know the right temperatures the right kind of humidity the right kind of soil um and it's generally a crop that's flourished as a smallholder crop it isn't It isn't sort of grown in plantations anywhere in the world. So it's seen as a crop that's sensitive, that needs a lot of care, that works as a smallholder crop. When you go to a cocoa farm, the trees are all sort of quite densely packed together. It's quite difficult to tell where one farm ends and another begins. I could never tell, though farmers would always say, oh, so-and-so starts over there. Um, A cocoa pod is generally about the size of a rugby ball, though I'm sure people... Could question my <laughs> my use of that description, but I would think of it as being a ripe one, as maybe maybe slightly smaller, um, twenty
0: centimeters or so. Yeah, you know, yeah. eight inches perhaps.
1: Yeah, and um, it's unripe; it's green. They come from sort of tiny white flowers, which are called cherries, and they then blossom into pods, um, and they start off sort of green pods, and then they grow into sort of yellow or um, yellow large yellow or purple pods, and that pods, and that's when they're ripe, and a farmer would sort of chop them down with a machete slice them and then scoop out all these white beans and then um, leave them to ferment on reed trays for six or seven days. And it's this fermentation process that is meant to give sort of Ghanaian cocoa beans their sort of distinctive taste. I mean, Cadbury is built to the taste, the taste of Cadbury's chocolate is the taste of Ghanaian cocoa beans. Cadbury's mm-hmm. gets all its cocoa from Ghana. So it's this sort of fermentation process where they sort of they leave the beans out for six or seven days, turn them twice, that sort of allows that sort of cocoa smell to that cocoa... Um, that cocoa taste to develop or that particularly distinctive cocoa taste to develop. Um, and then um, for each yeah and then they the farmers load them into bags and take them to near the nearest buying station. Mm-hmm. Um, it's I've always thought whenever um whenever I visited farms I always thought this is a very hard life. Mm-hmm. Um, the, though often farmers within their communities would be seen as being relatively quite well off because obviously at certain times of the year, between October and December, they would have three or four bags of cocoa, maybe worth $100 each, which they would get that money four hundred dollars which, relatively speaking, can be quite a lot. But then that money, they might lease the land. Mm -hmm. um, So maybe a third would go to the landlord. Then there's money they will have borrowed throughout the year, which they will then pay back um so that money can disappear incredibly quickly um even though it can it can be a lot of money to get at one time of the year usually between october and december It's sort of when the cocoa money arrives um so it's not a job where you have a monthly salary
0: mm-hmm. um and you say that it's something that fluctuates a lot dependent on weather as we were saying when we yes, cooking when, when have, you first got yeah. that. Uh, so it, it sounds as though uh, it, it, i don't want to use uh, well perhaps the word resilient is it a are the farmers quite resilient to change and fluctuations? Or is it one of those things that your your income flies up one year and collapses the next year?
1: Um, I think farmers are, can be quite vulnerable to sudden changes in the price. Mm-hmm. Um, it depends on... I guess it depends on how diversified their farms are. Um, you can certainly make the argument that most farms are not actually that diversified. They're very over-reliant on cocoa um so yes a bad crop a bad crop can really devastate a farmer um a sharp drop in the price can really devastate a farmer um and you know it has a huge impact for the farmer his his or her family and sort of sort of the wider community as mm-hmm. well as just the Ghanaian treasury and the money that arrives in there mm-hmm. um, it has that huge impact on a, on on a very on a very local level i mean It's certainly a hard... You definitely do meet farmers who've done quite well out of it. You definitely do meet farmers who... They might have a sort of a small mud dwelling in the village where they farm, but they've managed over the years to make enough money to buy a house in a town nearby. So you definitely do meet farmers who've done quite well out of it. Um, They tend to be bigger farmers, who've more farms, um, who maybe maybe own some land as well as leasing land. Um, But for the vast majority of farmers, when I met them... You know, I was always struck by, you know, this this is a very hard life.
0: Mm. And what about when you move up a level from the farms and you get towards the, as you were, marketing boards, uh, the political level? When you've got a country that's so dependent upon something like uh, cocoa, what has it done to Ghana over the years?
1: Right. Um,
0: Big question, sorry.
1: (laughs) The, um, I think... um, I would ge- in a broad because it's a big question. It's a, a broad answer. Mm-hmm. I would generally think that cocoa has been quite good to Ghana, mm-hmm. um, because you know there can be a tendency to sort of see commodities just in terms of exploitation, um, and you know because I thought quite carefully about the title for the book, and. I really wanted, you know, they're living and dying for cocoa in West Africa. When I say they're living for it, it's actually given people an income. Mm -hmm. You know, there's definitely a side to it, particularly in Cote d'Ivoire, where it's been quite bloody. It's been quite brutal. You know, it's been very murky. But in lots of ways, the crop has been quite good to Ghana. Um, I think um, often when you talk to Ghanaians, I mean, since Ghana got independence in 1957 and... Is the first African, first country on the African continent to get, well, actually Egypt, (laughs) the first country in sub-Saharan Africa to get independence. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, they followed, there was a succession of coups. Um, There were some quite rough years through the sort of the 60s and 70s. And in that time, sort of Ghana really was the country's only export. It was its one source of foreign exchange. And when you talk to people from that era, particularly people who are sort of in government or in the marketing board in that era, they talk about about it like that cocoa kept the country together, Mm -hmm. that the money from that came the country together. Kept the the money they earned from cocoa kept the country together, and they also had a lot of barter arrangements with. I think with Cuba, they swapped you know cocoa for sugar and this kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think historically, and that sort of, there's that sense that you know cocoa has done a lot for Ghana. There's also, which I guess helps explain the sort of the protectiveness around it. I think when you think of what cocoa means for Ghana now, there are a lot of questions about where Ghana goes from here, Mm. because um, Ghana is still essentially um, a producer of a raw crop. It's mm-hmm. not adding value in Ghana. It's Ghana's recently become sort of... Ghana is Africa's newest oil producer. Um, Ghana needs to think about where it goes forward with cocoa from here. Mm. Um, it's um, it's a very difficult situation for Ghana to be in. There are 800,000 farmers in Ghana. They make their living from the sale of cocoa beans. Um, you need to think about how you modernise the industry, how you can improve yields, how, um, you know, how you can improve these farmers' incomes. And often, when if you were to look at that in a sort of cold-hearted, sort of straightforwardly logical way, then you would question, should you have 800,000 farmers with five hectares each farming this land? Mm-hmm. Shouldn't you just have 200,000 farmers with maybe bigger farms and then, you know, properly managed with higher yields, running them actually as a business rather than this smallholder sharecropper way. Mm -hmm. But then you have to start thinking about what do all these other people do, you know, where in a way Coco has provided, I always felt it provided as some sort of a basic social net uh so social it provided a basic net for the country it was almost like welfare mm-hmm. that sort of as long as the coca money was coming in there was some money coming into the company and coming into the country and coming in at a at a grassroots level it was you know you can have a gold mine you can dig go you can mine for gold you can sort of Sell that gold, and that gold mine will employ two hundred people. And the government will take the money from the money from that gold mine, and will go to the company and it will go to the treasury. The money from cocoa, the government taxes it quite heavily, but a lot of money goes to an awful lot of people at grassroots level on the ground. Mm -hmm. So it's provided this kind of social net. Um, So it's just the sense: very few countries have ever developed by remaining producers of basic commodities such as cocoa so it's the sense of where does Ghana see itself going from here and but the reality is that cocoa in lots of ways has been quite good for it
0: is there any way that uh, that Ghana or, or other um, growers of, of cocoa could move up the value chain within the chocolate industry right I, I, I've, I've heard this mooted by several people um, I'm not certain it always sounds like the most sensible thing. For one thing, I mean, uh, especially when you end up with the final product, you're, you're looking at something that melts.
1: Yes, um, <laughs> <laughs> most obvious point. <laughs> well, you know, if you you're talking about sort of making a perishable product in a tropical country where there is no market for that product, so yeah. um, and although the world
0: market is in, increasing quite quickly, I understand um, for cocoa.
1: The word, yes, there is demand for cocoa. Demand for cocoa is quite is quite strong. I think demand for cocoa um, in Ghana, and, demand for um, chocolate products in Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire, and even within the rest of Africa, is in tiny, limited, minuscule. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but if you're a chocolate producer, you would think you would want. If you're a chocolate maker, rather, you would want to make that perishable product close to your end consumers. Mm-hmm. And Ghana or Cote d'Ivoire are not close to their end consumers, and also there is one guy um steve wallace um an american guy who does make chocolate in ghana um omanhini chocolate and um i i've met him a few times and i write about him in the book and you know it's it's i mean he his joke was when he first started to when he first had this idea of wanting to make chocolate in Ghana, his big fear was, I guess, like any entrepreneur, that, you know, what if somebody gets there before me? You know, I really want to be the first guy to do this. And, you know, as, you know, however many years later, as he's been sort of slogging away at this, you know, (laughs) he has many fears, but he doesn't fear that anyone else is going to want to do this. (laughs) Because uh, he knows exactly how difficult it is. um,
0: (laughs) That's a feedback mechanism in (laughs) itself for entrepreneurs. Yes,
1: but, you know, I think... There's no dairy industry in West Africa as such. Mm-hmm. So you. I think he gets his milk from New Zealand. There is um, a sugar industry, but I don't think he gets his sugar from within Ghana. Power is incredibly expensive. Mm-hmm. And it's much cheaper to export beans than it is to export a finished perishable product. Mm-hmm. Packaging is very difficult to get, you know. Um, and then it's very difficult. He then as a as a small entrepreneur starting out by himself, he also find it quite difficult to sort of to get on supermarket shelves in the US. Um, so it's I mean it's a definite it's definitely a very um, appealing idea. I mean if you break down I think um, if you you know if you break down the cost of a chocolate bar if it's the chocolate bar cost a pound I think seven pence is spent on ingredients and 43 pence goes to the manufacturer Mm -hmm. so you know Ghana and Cote d'Ivoire aren't getting any of that much larger share which is manufacturing they're just getting the little the tiny bit which is sort of spent on ingredients but I find it very hard to believe that um, I think it's quite um, an attractive idea to think that the way forward would be for them to make chocolate and you know, would be for Ghana and Ivory Coast to make chocolate locally, but I I don't actually really think it makes sense. You know,
0: I, I I've got a question you may or may not be able to answer, but every so often someone talks about trying to um, trying to market chocolate in the same way that you might be able to market some other fine foods, and of course you see you see the effects of this when you go into certain shops in in London mm-hmm. or, or whatever, and uh, you know they start talking about single source um, cocoa beans etc. Do many of these things make a difference, or are they just ways um, of trying to uh, trying trying to actually increase the quality of the of the, of the chocolate in some way, but also market it at a higher level and maybe you know be able to shuffle more funds down the the chain to right. the to the you um, know in fair trade type of way?
1: Okay, I tend to think when um, I think anything that encourages people to buy chocolate is probably good for farmers because, um, but I tend to think that. Single source initiatives or initiatives which are about sort of um, a finer kind of chocolate or a more exclusive kind of chocolate. I tend to think of those as marketing initiatives. It's a way for manufacturers to differentiate themselves on the shelf. Mm. Um, And I tend to think that ultimately they're all quite niche initiatives. You know, the vast majority of bars that are sold are Mars, Twix's, Snickers. And these Mm. are the bars, you know. These are the bars which are made from cocoa beans from sort of West Africa. Um, so I think it's good, you know, these kind of marketing initiatives, I guess, encourage people to buy more chocolate or encourage people who might not otherwise eat chocolate to think, you know, oh, this is, you know, this is something I might like. You know, if I don't necessarily like sweet foods, I might like this kind of exclusive chocolate. Um, I kind of tend to think of it as a bit of a red herring um, in, in terms of thinking about sort of how you improve farmers'
0: lives. Mm. And uh, I suppose this conversation moves neatly on to the question of fair trade. And fair trade has been obviously increasing in leaps and bounds in terms of the percentage of, uh, of the market for various things, whether it's uh, mm. it's uh, chocolate or, or or other commodities grown in, in especially in the developing world. Um, what are your thoughts about fair trade? Because you address it quite quite a lot in the book,
1: right? Um- yeah, I guess when I first moved to Ghana, um, I was certainly quite sort of sympathetic to the idea of fair trade because I think um, the narrative is um, is a very compelling one, which is that if I pay a little bit more for this bar of chocolate, um, then the people who make the chocolate will pay a little bit more to the farmer and then sort of he's better off. Um, so it's definitely a narrative that I have sympathy with. Um, but I guess when I went to the bush, I... Um, I found it to be slightly more complicated than that. Um, I think fair trade needs to be understood within the context of the of the overall Ghanaian market. So um, the Ghanaian government sets a minimum price for farmers. Mm-hmm. Um, and the minimum price it sets for farmers is, I think, it's about ni- now about $1,900 a ton. And that's compares with a price on the New York Stock Exchange of about $2,300. Mm-hmm. So the Ghanaian government pays its farmers about well over 70% of the market price, mm-hmm. um, which this is actually quite... Uh, historically, this is quite unusual. Um, during the 70s and early 80s, farmers could have received 10% of the market price. During the, se- the commodities boom in the 70s, I think the cocoa price was $3,000 and farmers are receiving $300 per tonne. Mm. Um, whereas now... Um what's changed is that since the 70s and 80s, um, Ghana's had, I think, five democratic elections and two peaceful handovers of powers, uh, two peaceful handovers of power. Um, and in the political situation in Ghana, such as there's two main political parties, the New Patriotic Party, the NPP, and the National Democratic Congress, the NDC, um, and both of them are fairly evenly matched in terms of support. So there'll be an election in Ghana later this year, and, you know, it's they'll go pretty much head to head. It's, there's no obvious winner. Um, and you have... Think again about the fact that there's sort of... It's a country, with a population of 20 million people, about 4 million of them make their money from cocoa. The government sets the minimum price for cocoa. Mm-hmm. They are now looking, you know, as never before in Ghana's history, they are now looking for farmers' votes. <laughs> mm. um, I'm as sure as, I mean... <laughs> I think it's. I, th- I would think that it's quite likely that going into the election this year, with an election due in December, that when the government sets the p- the price for cocoa farmers in September, October, that they will increase the price they pay to farmers. Mm. So the advent of democracy, um, I feel has really benefited farmers in Ghana because the Ghanaian government doesn't feel able to push them around in the same way that they did before. Because before they could just, they'd sell the cocoa for the farmers, tax it as much as they want to, and, you know, keep the cash, and the farmers could maybe get 10% of the international, of the price on in the international market. And now the Ghanaian government says, you know, every budget, it always says, our plan is to pay farmers the minimum 70% of the world market price for cocoa. Um, and this has been a huge development mm. that... Um, The the Ghanaian government can't ignore farmers the way that historically it's been able to, where it just taxes them whatever, because they'll lose out at the ballot box. Um, I mean, they they could certainly do an awful lot more for farmers. And you could certainly argue that a farmer who gets 70% of the world market cocoa price is paying a very high tax on his turnover and he should be receiving more. He could be receiving, he should be receiving 85% or 90%. But this has been a huge development and largely unsung. Which, and it's been a Ghanaian development. It's not a development that's come from overseas. It's been a a Ghanaian development that sort of the government no longer feels is able to ignore farmers as it once was. And this has sort of improved the lot of the vast, the life of the vast majority of Ghana's 800,000 farmers. Mm -hmm. So this is something I applaud. This is not, it's... Certainly, the Ghanaian government could do an awful lot more for their farmers. Um, they're by no means perfect, <laughs> but um, in the sense of there's def- a definite responsiveness there. Um, so that's the overall. That's the that is the story of the Ghanaian cocoa market over the past sort of twenty years or so. And that and on the other side, you have fair trade. And fair trade, by comparison, is just a very small initiative which in which um, benefits. A far smaller number of farmers. and it doesn't it does the contrast between what farmers fair trade farmers get and what farmers who just who just receive the Ghanaian government minimum is not that great. Mm-hmm. I think the fair trade minimum price is two thousand dollars a ton. There's a social premium on top of that of two hundred dollars per ton. Um, but this fair trade has forty thousand farmers who sell 20,000 tonnes of fair trade cocoa. And I've done the calculation, which if you look at the fair trade premium, um, and if you look at the number of farmers, that means they get about $100 extra per year um, per farmer. And that's nice. But it affects a small number of farmers compared to the vast number of farmers that have benefited from the moves towards democracy in Ghana and the Ghanaian government's greater responsiveness towards farmers and voters. Um, So I kind of feel in a way that fair trade is a bit of a sideshow. I think fair trade has done some interesting things in Ghana, but I think it's piggybacked on things that the Ghanaian government has done, which Mm. is essentially this move towards democracy, this sort of greater responsiveness um, on the part of the, the... part of the Ghanaian government so Take when I, when, on, I yeah. when I when I when I sort of see the fair trade narrative or when I see the fair trade advertising or what have you I tend to think there's a much bigger story there Absolutely. you know there's a much bigger story there and it's not a it's not a story about you know us as consumers it's not a story about fair trade it's a story about things that the Ghanaians have done for themselves
0: <laughs> at, <laughs> the, at, at the same time and this is where it's interesting to bring fair trade back in fair trade covers a lot of goods all the way through to quite small producers such as vanilla farmers uh, in other parts. Parts of the continent Uganda yeah. etc um, and perhaps it, it, it's fair to say that that Ghana both with its uh, with the success of its democracy again if we compare yeah. it to Cote d'Ivoire um, and with the fact that the cocoa farmers are quite a, a hefty block of votes for people to court, yeah. Maybe we're talking about a very, very specific situation. Or, or do you think that there are things in what you've been describing that, uh, that, that would provide optimistic scenarios for other farmers and producers across, across right. Africa?
1: Um, I'm always wary of extrapolating too much. Because sure. Um that way lies. That way lies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> lies madness. But um I mean there are some very interesting things about the Ghanaian situation. Um one is the fact that the Ghanaian government itself does set the a minimum price for cocoa and it can do this because it has a marketing board. Mm-hmm. Um and marketing boards by themselves are not are not in and of themselves, you know, a ticket to farmer happiness. Um it really varies. It really depends on how well they're run. They're run. Ghana's always had a marketing board. Um, for decades, it was simply a tool to overtax the farmer. It's no longer simply a tool to overtax the farmer. Um, the, so I, but I, there's a, the thing that, as the marketing board works now, I think it does work quite well for Ghana's 800,000 or so farmers because... While they are a hefty block of farmers individually, you know they're just a lot of guys who have a couple of hectares each they can't negotiate with Mars. <laughs> Ghana does negotiate with Mars and mm-hmm. um, Ghana does negotiate with Cadbury so I think there are interesting you know there are, there's a lot of that's interesting about the Ghanaian the Ghanaian scenario, which is that you have this marketing board which can work as an effective voice for sort of all the country's farmers um, and does provide them a lot of support in terms of insecticide and, you know, training and this kind of stuff. But in the past, it hasn't.
0: Mm. You know,
1: it's just been literally one more way to, you know, to shaft the farmer. So I think I kind of have a sort of a cautious admiration for marketing boards, if well run, um, and when you're in, when you're talking about a lot of smallholders, it can be an effective voice for
0: them. Um, you you draw a, a comparison or. or- maybe we're not talking about a comparison, but with uh, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, you talk about it um, being a weak point where such a system hits a, a supply, ch- where such a supply chain hits a corrupt patronage-based political system and, it, and its bureaucracy. And you've got a couple of figures in the book. Uh, for instance, in Cote d'Ivoire, the, the Bourse du Café et Cacao, sorry about my French, um, each member gets or has got 3.3 million CFA uh to attend a board meeting, and the boss has earned £31,000 or $38,000 a month on that. So so would that be an example of, of where such a system as a marketing board doesn't work?
1: Um, certainly, <laughs> yes. Um, the, I mean, I think it's important since the um, since long Bagbo was um, left power last year, um, all those cocoa institutions have been abolished. Or I think they were abolished oh, right. slightly before he left. So the cocoa situation in Cote d'Ivoire is currently in a state of flux. And they're considering um, a cocoa marketing board similar to the one that's um, in Ghana. Right. But in a way, how well that serves Ivorian farmers really depends on how well the Ivorian government wants it to serve its farmers. Yes. it um, You know, because the... I mean, one thing that struck me, because you have these two systems. Ghana, um, part of the IMF and World Bank reforms in the 90s, there was a huge push to get rid of marketing boards across Africa. Um, Ghana, I think largely because it was instituting a lot of other reforms and it had established itself as a democracy, was able to resist that demand to get rid of its marketing board. It kept its marketing board. Um, Cote d'Ivoire, which is heavily in debt, and didn't have a strong negotiating hand, um, got rid of its marketing board. So for years, you've been able to see these two systems grow side by side. Mm-hmm. One of which is free market, you know. One of which is the marketing board, um, and it's been very interesting to see sort of how how they've developed. And but I don't think, it, I mean, what's really interesting about it—it's hard to say straight in a very straightforward way—the marketing board system is definitely better because I don't think, given all the political turmoil. Um, that's how that's Cote d'Ivoire's experienced since the coup in nineteen ninety nine, so in the past fifteen years. Um, I don't think no matter what system they'd had, the farmer wouldn't have been well off mm. because the governments of those time have only ever been interested in stealing the cocoa money. They've only ever been interested in taking the money for themselves, giving the farmers as little as they could get away with. And even when they got rid of the marketing board, they just put all these other institutions in place to take the money from the farmer. So if you want to steal money from the farmer, you will find a way to do it. Mm. Um, so, And whether or not the cocoa marketing, the marketing board that Vol introduces you know, works for farmers, really does come down to if Cote d'Ivoire wants it to work for farmers. Mm. Um, So, so I've always, I found that sort of interplay between sort of, in a way, economics and politics really, really fascinating. Because yes, you know, you can be in an office in Washington or London and say, yes, that's exactly what farmers should do. That's what these countries need. And, you know, it comes down to, you know, it depends on sort of how things work on the ground can be very, very different.
0: We're running out of time, so we've got uh, one other issue I really wanted to touch on, and that's the uh, an issue that, that that several charities in in mm. the developed world have often picked up on when it comes to the, the cocoa industry, and that's uh, child labour. Um, and in your book, you have a very nuanced treatment of this, uh, suggesting that some of the more agrarious examples that might be dug up by charities may not be all that they seem, but... You certainly don't shy away from the fact that there are issues connected with child labour in, yeah. in cocoa growing? Um,
1: it's certainly one of the biggest stories um, to the cocoa sector when I was there. And it's a story that um, really rattles most Ghanaians and um, Ivorians. Um, I mean, It annoys them for a few reasons, one of which they are genuinely afraid that people in the West will start buying their cocoa, (laughs) will stop buying their cocoa and then, you know, they won't have any money. But um, it also annoys them in the sense of, I guess, as as it would annoy anybody, this perception that do you really think we'd put our children into slavery? (laughs) Mm. Is that how, you know, is that how low of an opinion you have of us that, you know, you think you'd put our children into slavery? And I've certainly read some amazing, shocking things on, you know, on news websites um, about you know, figures that seem to have just come out of nowhere about how many children are meant to be working in slavery in Ghana and Ivory Coast and, and Cote d'Ivoire and cocoa farms, figures that have bare no relation to reality. Um, the, I mean, it's it's really interesting because there are certainly a lot of children working on cocoa farms, but the vast, vast majority of them are working with their families and an awful lot of them are in school. And... Mm. Um, I find it hard to say that there's anything particularly wrong with that. Um, there are, are certainly some children who are slaves, but there's a very—that's a very, very tiny percentage. And also, when we talk about slaves, what we're talking about is, in a way, um, a, a distortion of a traditional system of apprenticeship, where children from poor family would be poor families would be sent to work. Um, as house girls on fishing boats or on farms to learn a skill which they could then which could then help take them into adulthood and mm-hmm. you know help them earn money um, and some of these children are well treated and some of them aren't and that's true whether they end up as a house girl in a middle-class family in a or whether they end up on a fishing boat or mm. you know whether they end up on a cocoa farm um, i think when you're looking at the issue of the broader issue of children working on farms. um, I think the way these farms are structured with sort of, you know, you're looking at a farmer who's maybe four or five hectares of land. You know, he, you know, maybe harvests two or three bags of cocoa a year, $100 each. Um, He doesn't really use insecticide, doesn't really... He kind of, I mean, you could some people would argue, is he really a farmer or does he just go around gathering the cocoa pods? Mm-hmm. You know, because farming can imply a level of skill which doesn't necessarily isn't necessarily apparent on the ground. But as long as cocoa is done like that, then yes, mm. there probably will always be children. Mm. There probably will always be children, members of an extended
0: it. family, just like yeah. if I if my parents were running a, a you know a post office or a, or a shop, you know, occasionally I'd help out stocking the shelves or something,
1: yeah. Perhaps. Uh, um, the but I mean it's a very difficult subject because every child has a right to an education, and they you know, if there was any sense that sort of a child has being kept on a cocoa farm and being kept out of school, then that's then mm-hmm. that's clearly wrong. But when you're looking at it when you're looking at the best way to tackle this, I think somehow exaggerating the numbers or exaggerating the reality. All it does is, in my experience anyway, is annoy people in Ghana and Ivory Coast because they just sort of feel it's another example of how Westerners don't really understand what's happening here, how they, you know, just think the worst of us. And it doesn't, um, it kind of obscures, it it obscures the whole issue. And I don't think, you know, and I I think it's certainly true that when you talk to people who worked in... um, I think when I spoke to the IOM, the International Organization of Migration, about this mm-hmm. issue, um, they were quite clear that there is a problem with child slavery in Ghana, but it's in the fishing industry. But the fishing industry is entirely local. You know, they're not producing a good which is sort of sold in a Western market. And NGOs don't tend to jump on the fishing industry. Mm. <laughs> you know, they've jumped on the chocolate industry. Um, Again, and it comes not, back
0: to what that symbolizes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I... You know, I understand. I can understand the motivation and why that might be an attractive thing to do. But then you just have to ask, what does, what has it, what does it really serve, um, to do this? Um, you know, to exaggerate a problem, to make it out to be worse than it is. Um, and if you're thinking of sort of how you genuinely reduce the instance of children of child labour on farms, then you have to be looking at a much you know you're really looking at how the industry is structured you know you're moving it beyond these sort of family farms you know where you know people don't use fertilizer they don't use insecticide they just maybe harvest two or three bags a year and they don't make any money from it you need to sort of move it into not necessarily large plantations but into something which is essentially one more like a business
0: mm, you know and more then structured.
1: yeah something which is one more like a business where you don't have kids running around mm. um so yeah, it's it. it was, I found it a very complicated. I found it a very complicated and difficult issue to write about. And every time, just when I thought I'd figured it out, I'd speak to someone or sort of I'd speak to someone who sort of changed my mind and made me think that um, that I got it wrong.
0: Well, in my so. experience, the more complicated something seems, the the more you actually know about it. <laughs> if something simple, then you you really haven't understood it. Uh, I, I mean that that's a fascinating take on the on the child slavery bit, but it's a fascinating book anyway on on quite a, quite an extraordinary subject. That that, yeah, as you said, it's difficult to extrapolate, but you know, perhaps speaks to some of the other debates about uh, yeah. about development and about produce and about economics in the rest of Africa. Yeah. But uh, anyway, just to finish up, uh, I did warn you earlier on that I was going to ask you the question about. Have you got a favourite place in Africa?
1: Um, I'm not sure that I do. I've lived in Uganda and I've lived in Ghana. And um, before I went to both countries, people said, the two nicest places place in Africa, are Uganda and Ghana, you know, people are really friendly and, you know, they're great places to live. And that's, that's really very true of both of them. They're really great. They're great countries and, you know, um, and I really miss living in both of them. You know, I... You know, I think about them a lot and I think about people I met there. And um, I'm always trying to get back to Africa in some shape or form. Mm. (laughs) But, um, yeah. So, and I think obviously when you live someplace even more, you have a tighter connection to it. Um, I've obviously been to beautiful places sort of elsewhere on the continent. But um, I think I would... I think I tie it between Uganda and Ghana because I, live, I lived in both of those places and I feel I feel I know them quite well and, you know, I have a, a lot of great memories from them. And I hope to go back to Ghana this year. But uh, So maybe Ghana slightly edges above Uganda.
0: <laughs> if only through anticipation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, thank you so much for coming in. That's been fascinating. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and that was all Ryan explaining how one of the world's most fated customer products has such an impact on the ground in West Africa. This is Nicholas Walton wishing you a good day from here in London and thank you for listening to New Books in African Studies.